0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome. Thanks for coming out on a cold Cambridge afternoon. It's pretty, pretty frigid out there. So today's the day you get to hear two accents like this. Uh, um, You thought there wasn't another one in the world, really, didn't you? Um, So good afternoon, everyone. Before we begin, please note that we're video recording and photographing this session. So if you'd prefer not to be videotaped or photographed, Please tell our video technician and photographer and we will excise you. Um, So uh, thanks for that. Um, So our schedule today is that um, I will introduce our uh, guest speaker. um, And then Gary Mason will speak for about 40 minutes or so. And then we will have a a short dialogue for 10 or 15 minutes at the front, um, where we will be reminiscing over old times, probably. (laughs) We both grew up in East Belfast um, uh, uh, during the troubles and um, uh, as I found out today, we actually attended the same church or <laughs> anyway, enough of that we, we can re- reminisce later and then we'll have a time of um uh you know twenty twenty five minutes for more open questions um, is particularly as you know I mean, one of the reasons I think it's a particularly apposite time to be talking about these things is with the um Brexit negotiations, which you know uh, quite a lot about, and the role of Northern Ireland uh, and Ireland um, in those negotiations is really quite fraught. It is, as as The Economist magazine put on its front cover, the mother of all messes. Um, And uh, as I was saying to uh, Gary earlier, that um, you say one thing today, and by 24 hours later, the situation's changed uh, already. So it's a very complicated and um, mobile situation so uh, so welcome to this special event hosted by the RPP uh, on the title, The Role of Reconciliation, Memory, and Theology in Shaping the Public Stage. So I'm David Hempton, uh, Dean of the uh, Harvard Divinity School. And I'd like to extend a very warm welcome to our featured speaker, Reverend Dr. Uh, Gary Mason, um, his wife, Joyce. Uh, thank you for being with us. Um, And also uh, welcome our co-sponsor, the Program of Negotiation at the Harvard Law School. Thanks so much. Um, We'd also like like to thank uh, RPP's generous supporters, including uh, Karen and Al Budney, uh, for helping to make these and other uh, religions and practice of peace activities uh, possible. As As always, our appreciation goes as well to our RPP student assistants and staff for their work in organizing this event. A tremendous amount of hard work goes into Putting these events on, arranging for refreshments and rooms and speakers. And uh, so, thank you so much, everyone who's played a part in that. We really appreciate your work. So, much has been written about the Northern Ireland peace process, particularly on securing the peace. However, as Senator George Mitchell commented in relation to the Good Friday Agreement if you think getting this agreement was difficult, implementing it will be even more difficult. 21 years after the signing of the Good Friday Agreement, um, and I was in Belfast then as chair of the history department in Queens, University Belfast, and back in 1998, left for the United States about three months later, uh, having survived the troubles, I came, and then peace broke out. Um, uh, So 21 years after uh, uh, the um, uh, signing of that agreement, those words of implementing it being difficult have proven to be prophetic words, So Dr. Mason will explore what reconciliation looks like in a contested space, the power of memory and story in keeping the pain of the past alive, and how theology can move into that contested narrative in a way that brings about dialogue, honesty, and some healing. He will also address the current Brexit situation, uh, so far as we understand it, exploring how Brexit has been a very difficult experience. Um, uh, for Britain and for Ireland, um, and uh, especially um, North and South Ireland. So Gary Mason is a Methodist minister and directs a conflict transformation organization based in Belfast called Rethinking Conflict. Prior to this, he spent 27 years as a Methodist clergy person in congregational ministry in Belfast, and he has played an integral role in the Northern Irish peace process. He played a key role in establishing the Skenos Project, which is a world-class urban centre developed in a post-conflict society as a model of coexistence and shared space. It is acknowledged as the largest faith-based redevelopment project in Western Europe. Gary is also a close advisor to Protestant ex-combatants on the um, civilisation efforts of paramilitaries. He was instrumental in facilitating negotiations with paramilitaries and government officials And in 2007, his contribution was formally recognized uh, by the Queen. In 2009, uh, Gary Mason's church was the stage from which loyalist paramilitaries announced their weapons decommissioning. So Gary has lectured in political and academic forums throughout Europe, South Africa, the Middle East and the USA on lessons that can be learned from the Irish peace process. He's been interviewed on CNN, BBC, ITV and various radio programs. He holds a PhD in psychology from the University of Ulster, completed his theological studies at Queen's University of Belfast, where I, I taught, and a bachelor's in business studies from the University of Ulster. He also holds an honorary doctorate from Florida Southern College. He is a senior research fellow at the Kennedy Institute for Conflict Intervention at Maynooth University in Ireland, and he is an adjunct professor at the Candler School of Theology at Emory, lecturing on reconciliation, peace building, the history of the Northern Ireland conflict, racism sectarianism, and conflict transformation. He's a faculty advisor and partner to the Negotiation Strategies Institute, a Harvard University program on negotiation. So we're very glad um, to have him here. And I'm going to turn over the podium and leave his notes. Which was... <laughs> um, uh, and um, Gary, thanks so much for being with us. Appreciate it.
1: David, thank you so much for those uh, words of welcome and thank you for coming out, as David has said, on such a a cool, cool day. I think, honestly, this is one of the coldest days I've ever experienced in my life. I was saying to some people that normally the Irish temperature is just pretty bland. It's kind of sort of 35 and if you're really lucky... 75 and there's no extremes so for me this is freezing i i left our little apartment yesterday david to leave down a few shirts to the dry cleaners i thought i was going to die and i said to the young woman can you get me an uber back to my apartment i just couldn't bear to walk 600 meters back i felt it was so so cold so so look for a few moments i want to try to tease out this whole concept of a uh, reconciliation uh, memory also, asking the question uh, is theology confined to the rarefied spaces of Harvard Divinity School or Queen's University or Candler School of Theology? Or can theology, which sometimes people think is a kind of fusty, musty, dusty discipline of another generation, actually spill into the public space and really make a difference? A South African professor in Reconciliation once said, Reconciliation is no cheap matter. It does not come about by simply papering over deep-seated differences. Reconciliation presupposes confrontation. Without that, we do not get reconciliation, but merely a temporary glossing over of differences. They suggest that the running source of society cannot be healed with the use of a band-aid. So reconciliation presupposes, he suggests, an operation, a cutting to the very bone without anesthetic, because the infection is not just on the surface. The abscess of hate, mistrust and fear between black and white, nation and nation, has to be sliced As David mentioned, we're 21 years celebrating the Good Friday Agreement in a couple of months' time, April the 10th. And Northern Ireland statistics, I often allude to these at the beginning of many lectures. Northern Ireland, as many of you know, is a very, very tiny space. Uh, During the conflict, 1.5 million people. But over that 30-year period, we had 47,000 injuries, 36,000 shootings, 22,000 armed robberies, 30,000-plus went through our penal system, 16,000 bombings, and almost 4,000 deaths. If I was to extrapolate those figures and put them into the US context, so simply put, if uh, the conflict that David and I grew up in as kids and young men had have taken place in the United States, it would have been 800,000 dead, and 6.4 million political prisoners. So suffice to say today, when I'm back home on the island of Ireland, uh, primarily the main thing I am dealing with is legacy. How do we deal with the past, with these painful memories, which I'll address in a few moments? I want to highlight first of all what I'm just simply calling uh, the role of toxic and transforming theology. Way, way back in the early 1990s, the Irish Council of Churches, which was based on Elmwood Avenue, literally facing uh, the university in which David spent so many years in, put together a working party on sectarianism Uh, for two years. I was the youngest person on that. It was actually chaired, David, if you remember, by uh, Marie McAleese, who went on to be uh, president of Ireland on two occasions, and John Lampin from Derry were the two co-chairs of that uh, committee. But very soon, almost literally in the first couple of months of looking at the roots of sectarianism, uh, we found ourselves pretty quickly back in the 16th and the 17th century. And we ended up playing about with these uh, three doctrines here, Uh, the doctrine of uh, one uh, true church. And I guess most of us in the room are pretty familiar with that one. Uh, Our church is the only true church. And if you're outside my church, uh, your chances of salvation are much diminished at best, okay? Interestingly, the doctrine there that Er has no right is a lot less well-known. It was developed by St. Augustine really to justify the use of state coercion to suppress his heretical opponents. Simply put, if they are radically in Er, they have no right to express or hold their beliefs. And for those of us in the Christian tradition who want to embrace honesty, we need to say categorically that "er is the doctrine, Ur has no right as the doctrine behind uh, penal laws, uh, inquisitions, uh, forced conversions and many similar ugly stains on Christian history by providence. Uh, we mean very simply, I guess, that uh, God is at work in the world and the faithful, discerning Christian believer can discern God's will and purpose by reading the signs of the times. Let me twist this a little. Let me combine one true church with the doctrine of "Er has no right. So I guess all of us could say today, quite openly and honestly, I mean, one true church, it's really just simply what all of us in this room would say. It's a truth claim, okay? And like every truth claim, it automatically carries with it the dangers of arrogance and imposition. But they're only dangers. They're not necessarily outcomes. So everything depends on how your truth claim is made. So if you make it very consciously and humbly, you don't have to impose it on other people, but if you believe that Err has no right, invariably the chances are that your truth claim will be made disastrously because if your church is the only true church and er has no right, it is your duty to see that er is suppressed by whatever means necessary. So tolerance isn't a virtue. Tolerance actually becomes a deadly vice. Combine one true church there with providence. Uh, Providence, as we mentioned earlier, simply teaches God is at work in the world. But if providence is interpreted in conjunction with one true church, it's very easily reduced to this mantra, God is on our side. So, if we were to rewind the DVD today, in the early part of the 20th century, when the British were going to disengage from Ireland under the Third Home Rule Bill in 1912, as many people here who are historians of the Irish conflict, on the Unionist side, we ended up with a militia army of 100,000 men determined to fight the British to stay British, but also on the other side with 100,000 men, Irish nationalists. Nice the motto of the Ulster Volunteer Force was for God and Ulster. God was on our side. They signed the Ulster Covenant. But my grandfather signed it. In the City Hall in Belfast. Some people were so determined to stay British that they signed it in their own blood. Religion was brought into it, so it was called Home Rule. And the mantra of the day for the Protestant mindset became... Home rule is Rome rule. We will not be ruled by the papists in Rome. But the 1916 Easter Rebellion, as many of us know in this room, even the words, how that was bathed with a religious context. It was interesting, actually, last time I was here along with David in 2016, I was doing something at the Edward Kennedy Institute and a number of Catholic theologians were trying to address how Catholic theology was steeped in the whole concept of the Easter Rebellion. And they were then saying, this was fundamentally wrong. We should not be using theology in this way. And interestingly, going back to the 17th century, 17th century France makes a very interesting comparison with the island of Ireland, because French Protestants, in a very distinctly Catholic state, were suffering a similar set of disabilities under the French penal laws that Irish Catholics were suffering in Ireland under the English penal laws. And the irony of it is the two rival regimes kept a kind of eye on each other across the English Channel to ensure they were outdoing the other person. So where do those roots of sectarianism actually lie? Someone has once said that Ireland is frozen in the pre-modern. So really the roots of modern Irish problems lie deep in the past. So let me just ask you a question, and we'll tease this out a little bit later. Do some of the current problems within the United States today, we're not going to answer this just now, possibly lie deep in the past? Let me just flip up. Something else in relation to, if we move from Ireland just for a moment to Nazi Germany, the second chapter of mine Kampf, let me quote Hitler's exact words. And Hitler was not a card carrying evangelical or even a card carrying practicing Catholic, but he wrote these words. Today I believe that I'm acting in accordance with the will of the almighty creator by defending myself against the Jews." So really, in reality, what Hitler was very cleverly doing was taking what most of us in this room would call uh, religious anti-Semitism and developing it into racial anti-Semitism. And if you'd ask me a question during discussion later on or ask David a question, was the conflict that David and I lived through a religious war? The answer is categorically no was primarily about land and identity, but I would still argue strongly that what I call toxic theology was feeding into this situation. So on my side of the fence, the British Protestant Unionist loyalist tradition, we had tough, fundamentalist, booming preachers telling us to liquidate the enemy on the other side. And using theology as a bulwark in propping up a system of violence. The said to me, if you excuse my language, in the divinity school, who ended up being involved in political violence, he said to me, you know, Gary, when you were taught Catholics were shit in Sunday school, it was much easier to kill them. And to balance the books there, prior to Vatican II, people from my tradition, from the Reformed tradition, were classed as, Heretics, not just simply separated brethren. And I don't need to remind this audience the church's track record in dealing with heretics. So, okay, it was not a religious war per se, but I do want to argue quite strongly that bad theology or toxic theology fed into that. Another person I know who got involved in paramilitarism or terrorism or political violence, whatever phraseology you want to use, he heard a right-wing fundamentalist preacher whose name I don't need to mention with an incredibly loud voice. And he said to me, you know, Gary, it, 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 it stirred a fire within me. We're saying, you know, Billy, it's not the fire of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> it was the fire of rampant sectarianism. So many young men of that generation, 16, 17, 18, because of toxic theology of the other, were driven into paramilitarism to defend their side against the enemy. And interestingly, one French historian uses the phrase talking about Judaism. It's a very interesting phrase. He calls it the teaching of contempt. So how many people then, Protestant fundamentalism or Catholic fundamentalism in my context were using a teaching of contempt about the other person. An interesting one, the Jewish historian puts it like this. He said, the uh, missionaries of Christianity had said in effect, you Jews have no right singular to live among us. The secular rulers who came later said, you Jews have no rights to live among us. And finally, as we all know, the Nazis finally decreed, you Jews have no right to live. So let's be honest, the process begins with the attempt to drive Jews into Christianity. The development is continued to force the victims into exile and it's finished when the Jews were driven to their deaths. So the German Nazis didn't discard the past. They simply built upon it. They didn't begin a development, they simply completed it. And so in my context, as David and Leanne and Joyce and those of you who have been to Belfast, there's a mural quite close to the Skynos building there that David alluded to. It's UVF wall mural. And as well as the forgotten ulster it says in a little caption above two hooded gunmen dressed in dark carrying ak-47s we are the pilgrims master we will always go that little bit further so evoking what we would call language in the new testament or spiritual language of a pilgrim and for those of us who are here in the christian tradition we often know the phrase was often used by the disciples of jesus the rabbi master what do we do so toxic theology while i'm suggesting it was not a religious war per se bad theology fed into our situation and jonathan sachs who uh, former chief rabbi of the british commonwealth said this on one point and it is a substantial one the critics of religion are right. Religion has done harm. It has led to crusades, jihads, inquisitions, and pogroms. It has shed the blood of human sacrifice in the name of high ideals. People have hated in the name of the God of love, practiced cruelty in the name of the God of compassion, waged war in the name of the God of peace, and killed in the name of the God of life. These are undeniable facts, and they are terrifying. Interestingly, the great believers have always known this. I mean, Pascal once said, men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from a religious conviction. Uh, Jonathan Swift, who was dean of Christ Church in Dublin, uh, probably known to most of us when we were little kids as the author of Gulliver's Travels, but he said this, we have just enough religion to make us hate, but not enough to make us love one another. And C.S. Lewis, who David and I will proudly remind people, was born in Belfast and at one stage did speak exactly like David and me. But when he went to become professor of medieval and Renaissance literature at Cambridge University, he began to speak a little bit different, probably more like this. But Lewis once said this. He said, I think we must really face the fact that when Christianity does not make a man very much better, it invariably makes them very much worse. And that happens not because religion is religion, but because human beings are human beings. They're certainly not God. And Sachs comments this. He says, religion has power. It bonds people as a group. It moves people to act. It changes lives. And then he says this very succinctly, whatever is power can be used misused, and abused. He comments, religion is like fire. It warms, but it also burns. And we are the keepers of that flame. So I guess the preacher in me has to ask all of us today, no matter what our religious tradition, or perhaps none, if we are the keeper of a flame and we define it as a faith tradition, are we using our faith to to warm people, or to burn people. I'm a Methodist clergy person, and Wesley, the uh, founder of Methodism, when he had his conversion experience at, what, 843 in City Road in London in the 18th century used the phrase, I felt my heart strangely warmed. But how do we use our religion today, in modern-day America, with your linguistic violence in the public space? How do we use our religion today within Europe, within the British Isles, with our linguistic violence around Brexit? So there are questions that both of us need to wrestle with. Let me highlight just for a moment racism and sectarianism. A a professor there up in the Union Theological Seminary in Upper West Side there in Manhattan, a number of years ago, wrote this little article. And he said this little phrase. And I just sort of pulled the line out where he said, no one in the United States, wants to deal with the legacy of slavery. I says, there's a really interesting S word. Let me tell you about mine. It's called sectarianism. And because many of our religious leaders did not have the courage to deal with the legacy of sectarianism, people like David and I, growing up as kids, were tossed into a bloody 30-year sectarian civil war and I don't buy this you know I often used to hear clergy and I don't say this in any nasty critical way but people used to remind me older clergy persons when I was you know going into ministry and saying oh Gary in the 50s and 60s our churches were filled oh really well I had to kind of quite cynically ask the question what were you doing stuffing yourselves with gospel blessings Singing hymns, reading the organist, giving them points out of ten, or the preacher of the choir, when outside we had a rampant sectarian society. So I suppose I had asked the question, why was faith not spilling into the public space and making a difference? So I want to suggest that racism and sectarianism have been twin evils running through the history of humanity and the church and to me in reality there are linkages between sectarianism and racism each one relies on what i would sort of call a a kind of ideology of superiority sort of greater entitlement of one group over another group they emanate from a politics of difference uh, almost kind of Escalating upwards to this pyramid of hatred, uh, prejudice attitude towards others, acts of prejudice, discrimination, harassment, violence. So really in terms of lived experience, racism and sectarianism may feel alike. They also feed in common factors, such as a denied or eroded entitlement you know the phrases, they're taking our jobs. Uh, Insecurity, unemployment, fear of the future, loss of faith in public authorities, or the political establishment. And it could also be argued in our context that the conflict, or the troubles as we call it, have really desensitized individuals. Sadly, a few years ago, and thankfully it is changing, but Belfast was classed as the racial hit center of Western Europe. Because with Eastern Europeans, Poles, Lithuanians, Estonians coming in, there was another other coming into our space. I'm doing some work at uh, Emory University in the Carter Center there in Atlanta, uh, really around uh, racial reconciliation. I read an article a couple of years ago by a a woman called Erin Hackett. And it's interestingly, she argues quite strongly, and most of the faces in this room today are white, so tune in, okay. She says white theology is anchored in what she calls a pathological individualism. Okay, so here's how it goes. She says, Jesus died for my sins. Jesus went to the cross for me. I know the plans he has for me. And she's pretty balanced. She says, of course there's a place for the individual in theology. But she's concerned that white theology, within American culture, or even Western culture, distorts the Bible to be solely about individual redemption so the verse i just quoted there Jeremiah 29 and verse 11 was not individual it was written in a community context it was addressed to a group of people namely the Jews. so all scripture sometimes in white theology is reduced to interactions between God and a person even though many, many times they're between God and a community or Jesus and a group of people. And she comes up with this fascinating phrase. She says, I think white Christianity suffers from a bad case of what she calls Disney princess theology. Okay. So she says, as each individual reads the scriptures, they see themselves as, guess what, the little princess in every single story. So we're always Peter. We're definitely never Judas. We're always the woman anointing Jesus' feet. We're never the Pharisees. We are the Jews escaping slavery. We are definitely never Egypt. So she suggests that perhaps, you may agree or disagree, do we have a very profoundly broken theology? Let me tease out for a few moments the power of memory. At my age, I will never, ever, 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 and my wife will not let me, I know, do another PhD. But if I was, I, I, would, do it, I would actually do it in memory. The role of theology and memory, psychology and memory, because we're people of memory. And so so many ways. History would teach us, I think. So this comes with a health warning initially that denial is wrong. Okay, so we could say amnesia is the enemy of reconciliation because it refuses victims the public acknowledgement of their pain. It invites offenders to take the path of denial. It deprives future generations of the opportunity to learn and understand from the past. But, memory in many ways is a kind of two-edged sword. I mean it undoubtedly, and I know this from personal experience, it does play a crucial role in making reconciliation sustainable. But I do know this, it also has the capacity to actually hinder reconciliation processes. Because there really is the danger of too much memory. Uh, Andrew Rigby, the scholar, says, too greatly concerned with remembering the past can ensure that the divisions of old are never healed, the wounds never addressed, and in such circumstances the past dominates the future and hence to some degree determines the future. Memory is often selective, and worst, it can be manipulated and it can also be abused. As I mentioned, you know, I grew up in that uh, British Protestant Unionist Loyalist culture. That's what shaped me as a human being. I remember as a little boy uh, being dragged or taken every single year on the 12th of July, To watch those orange men celebrating that very recent victory in 1690, (laughs) so I remember as a kind of six-year-old kid standing in the Lisburn Road, watching the bands and the colourful banners and dour-faced orange men, walking in dark grey pinstripe suits with bowler hats on one of the warmest days of the year, and calling, and they're sweating, and they call it a celebration. You know, okay, I kind of get that, but I remember this banner. 1641, which was a Catholic uprising against the Protestants who were taking their land, of the Protestants up to their necks in water in a river about to be pushed under and murdered by the Catholics. Now, what impact did that have on me as a six-year-old kid? It was a true historical narrative, there's no question about that. But I guess I digested in saying the context, ah, you can't trust those Catholics, They pushed Protestants onto the water and they drowned them. However, several weeks later, on the other side of the fence, there undoubtedly was another little boy who was Catholic and nationalist and Irish. And he was seeing his banners of Oliver Cromwell, the Puritan, the Lord Protector, sweeping through southern Ireland, sticking spears through the chests of Catholics. And I know that kid's narrative became, you can't trust Protestants. They stick spears through the chests of Catholics. The writer David Reif, I don't know whether you've read his book, he's a New York journalist, but he's written this book entitled, it's a very strange title, In Praise of Forgetting. He wrote an article in The Guardian that I emailed to a young student there in Harvard last night that I was chatting to, and the article was entitled The Cult of Memory, When History Does More Harm Than Good. remember a number of years ago speaking in Atlanta, and a friend of mine, who is an architect and his wife is a pharmacist, highly educated, he said, Gary, I must take you to the cyclorama which I'd never been to, the cyclorama in Atlanta, if you've been to it, depicts Sherman's burning of Atlanta. So you sit in this kind of sort of almost like massive sort of theater. Uh, It's a 360 degree where you kind of sit and you go around and you look at all these brilliant paintings. Walking out of the theater, Michael turned to me and said, Gary, isn't awful what those damn Yankees did to our city? So I said, how long ago was that, Michael? And he said, hmm, probably about 160 years. And you worry about us darn Irish and our obsession with dates and memories. So how do we do history? And so I guess in many ways it makes me talk about the question, you know, should we actually um, minimize memory? And yet as you look at the Bible and uh, remembering... You look in Daniel 9, for example, where Daniel confesses the sins that happened in another location, in another generation, and yet he considered it important to include himself in that even though he wasn't alive. And Nehemiah is another classic example. So how do we deal with this concept of memory? I mean, George Santa Anna's uh, dictum, David Irvine, was the best-known uh, loyalist politician. He was a ballmaker who became a peacemaker. And there's a mural in Belfast, not far from Skynos, and it uses Santa Anna's uh, dictum. Uh, Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Uh, David Rees suggests, but what if this is wrong? If not always, then maybe maybe at least part of the time. He suggests what of collective historical memory as employed by communities and nations leads more often to war than it actually does to peace, to rancor and resentment rather than reconciliation. The book's a very honest read because he said, I am not suggesting easy solutions. I am not prescribing moral amnesia. But he uses this fascinating phrase, quoting a scholar, where he says, the terror of remembering versus the terror of forgetting. And asks which one is best. He tells a story that as a journalist in a room in the early 1990s with a group of nationalistic Serbs. He leaves the room, and as he leaves the room, some enthusiastic Serb runs out after him, shoves a piece of paper into his hand. He opens it. He looks at some date to be at the Battle of Kosovo or whatever. He doesn't know what it is. He's a New Yorker. He goes back in. He says, like, what is this? He says, you don't know? And remember the Serbian nationalist says, take away the Battle of Kosovo. And you take away the soul of the Serbian nation. And I think most commentators would say today that the breakup of Yugoslavia, a lot of it was evening old scores from the past. Because some of those battles, the assassination, the murder, the genocide of 10,000 Bosnian Muslims was remembering a battle. Because the Serbs lost the Battle of Kosovo. Was revenge for something that happened in another generation. So the Bosnian War was fueled in so many ways. A slaughter fueled by collective memory. So I have a few minutes left. My wife is a very methodical timekeeper. Am I gone? Give me two minutes, okay. And then we'll cover this, okay. So. I think theology has a place or a space to play in relation to this. Uh, John Brewer, David, who you would know, I do a lot of work with her at Queens, and he would often address as really palestinian groups and I have in Belfast. And We're working on this thing called uh, remembering forwards. It's a very simple analogy. It's called rear view mirror syndrome. So when I'm driving my vehicle, and I know all you safe drivers do exactly the same, You spend 90% of your time looking through the front windshield and probably 10% looking in the rear view mirror. In post-conflict societies, invariably, we spend 90% of the time looking in the rear view mirror and only 10% looking forwards. So how do we begin to shape a future while acknowledging the past? So very, very quickly. I want to suggest that the whole concept of lament or grieving is absolutely essential. I think sometimes, particularly within our Christian tradition, uh, we're not allowed to express anger or disappointment with God. Uh, Jewish rabbis would say a person who has not been angry with God is a person of little faith. So sometimes in our sterile, cerebral church services, we need to have a space. I mean, I have nothing against worship bands. I I used them. I fell under the spell slightly of that church growth movement and have a fancy sexy worship band. It will increase your church, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I I did have to ask myself the question, why have I not got a lament band? Because a third of the Psalms, let's be honest, have a dark, brooding tone. I think too many of our churches really who want a Gary Mason for their pastor? They'd probably prefer like Jerry Springer or Oprah Winfrey. Just come along and just let me feel good on a Sunday morning. I remember Will Willemone, who was the dean of chapel at Duke University, where I'll be in a few weeks' time, when he spoke to my congregation at East Belfast Mission, said, "Gary is not here to meet your needs. Too many people want a pastor who is there to meet their needs." In my Wesleyan tradition, my role, I believe, uh, was to make people holy, not to meet their needs. How do we create a space to tell our stories? How do we allow sacred space to be used for that? Gus the writer says that science has proven that storytelling is one of the most powerful mechanisms for bringing about healing. And you think of the phrase when we were all little kids, those four magic words, when mom or dad or granny and granda said at the edge of your bed once upon a time, your eyes lit up. So I want to suggest that our faith communities, be they, be they mosques or churches or synagogues or temples or whatever, We need to create spaces for once-upon-a-time stories. Forgiveness is such a complex mechanism, I'll not even go into it in detail for the sake of time, but uh, quoting C.S. Lewis again, he did say, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until we have something to forgive. And this whole concept of acknowledgement of wrongs and apology, there's something incredibly cathartic or disarming about saying, this was wrong, and I'm sorry. It works in my marriage, and I'm sure Leanne David, it, it works in yours. I mean, I remember once standing up in a meeting and some of my own unionists, people being annoyed when I said, you know what uh, the unionist governments did to Catholics in Northern Ireland was wrong in education, in housing, in employability. It was wrong. Oh, I know all the reasons, the fear of the, the South and the papacy and all the rest of it, but it was still wrong. So in that context, we need to have the courage to have an acknowledgement of wrongs and apology. And I guess I've spent my life, and I'll just finish with this, being a, a critical friend to those people who pursued political violence. I've had my critics for doing it. But I find him in very good company because within the model of Jesus and my faith tradition in the New Testament, I find that Jesus often spoke to people with whom he fundamentally disagree. And so I've often said that engagement is not endorsement. I totally abhor political violence. I could keep you here until midnight, as David knows, telling you pastoral stories of death, destruction, bombings, murder, I've seen too much of it firsthand. But I still have to be honest. I have to ask myself the question, why do so many men, and it was primarily men, of David's generation and my generation, make what I call wrong choices for allegedly the right reasons? As a friend of mine said, you know, someone in the late 1960s did not fly over Northern Ireland and sprays all with lunatic gas, and we all woke up some morning and decided to start killing each other. There was a context. It's a context of bad politics. There's a context of bad religion that massaged that fertile soil in that tiny little space called Northern Ireland. And then finally, out of those thirty to 40,000 people that went to prison, 90% of them never would have been anywhere near a prison if it hadn't have been for our messy context. So in other words, if they had been born in Boston or Mexico City or Paris or Berlin, they wouldn't have been there. 10% would have. And interestingly, and finally, out of those thirty-five to 40,000 people that have come out of prison, do you know how many have reoffended? between 1% and 2%. And you know the reoffending rates, what are 40 50 60%. So there was something wrong, or there was a, a darkness on our island. And I think only now people are painfully and slowly having the courage to actually deal with. Okay, I will finish there, or my wife will growl. Okay. APPLAUSE
0: Gary, thanks so much. Okay, for, um, th- Those uh, very interesting and penetrating reflections around theology and and, and memory. Um, a, f- a few questions, maybe you know, rearview mirror and and looking forward. Um, I mean, from the '98 uh, peace accord and you know, building on this Mitchell comment about how much more difficult yes. reconciliation is. What what have you seen um, that's encouraging and what have you seen that's depressing in those 21 years in Northern Ireland uh, in terms of reconciliation around the themes that you've been playing with today?
1: I suppose I uh, introduce a little bit of romance into it on a cold Wednesday afternoon. I know, David, when we were kids, if I had a dirt date of Catholic, a Catholic, apart from anything, my granny would have probably slapped me around the ears because it wasn't the done thing to do. When I tell that story in America, and people have a sharp intake of breath, I can't resist saying, oh yeah, there were a lot of blacks and whites dating here in the 60s, weren't there? So don't you Americans dare lecture me about dating, you know, in relation to that. So it wasn't a done thing to do. I mean, I know people, and you know David as well, and you know, I mean, if people fell in love from working class backgrounds, they had to, like, as we say, clear off to England to continue their relationship. Uh, beside my grandfather's grave there are two young Protestant boys uh, aged 18 and 19 who were dating Catholic girls, the IRA murdered them, age 18 and 19. So it is today I think it's 20% plus the intermarriage between Catholics and Protestants. So I think in a sense, you know, maybe the Beatles are right, maybe all you need is love, but I think that generation, because there's spaces now in the city of Belfast and many other places, where people can actually meet and be together and humanise the other. Like when David and I were kids, as soon as darkness fell, city centre, Belfast city centre was absolutely a ghost town. I think looking at the whole reconciliation process, um, I've often looked at the whole model of AA, which I think is is a brilliant model. I often say AA is a much more honest place than the church will ever be even after 31 years, 32 years actually, I'm ordained now. I do have to say sometimes I have found churches to be the most dishonest places on the planet. I just want a space where people can stand up and say, my name is Gary, I'm an alcoholic. Can you help me? The problem is sometimes churches believe in what I call amputation rather than reconciliation. When there's the problem, it's get the person as quick as possible out the door rather than actually dealing with what is happening there in case you ruin our testimony, whatever that actually means. Um, So I think, David, the first thing is just that kind of openness and honesty. And to be honest about that, the people that primarily have led the way and that are the people who were involved in political violence. Uh, So, I mean, lots of ex-prisoners groups in the inner city uh, have spearheaded... And I guess in many ways, because they know the cost of conflict sometimes in a way that other people don't. I mean, I think of Alan McBride, who, I mean, all of us here would, would know from this sort of Irish contingent. I did Alan and uh, Sharon's wedding in the late 1980s, co-officiated at that, and Alan's wife, Sharon, and her dad uh, were murdered in a bomb, uh, 23rd of October, 1993. And Allen initially took out his venom primarily in Gerry Adams. Uh, so if Adams was in Boston, uh, Alan was standing there with a placard protesting against the spokesperson for the IRA. He wrote Gerry Adams nine letters in English, never responded. Wrote him the tenth one in Irish, and Adams did respond. But then what Adams actually did, he said, uh, Alan, I understand your pain, but you need to understand Republicans have pain too, and no one is working harder than me for peace. Mm. Two weeks later, the IRA blew up a car in Lurgan, killed the uh, janitor, who just happened to be working in a police station, no security connection, and put his three-year-old daughter in the back of the car on a life support machine. So Alan asked the question, Is there a double think here? And it was only two years later when he was in Edinburgh with a former UVF and former IRA volunteer where after a couple of pints, the IRA volunteer reached over, put his hand on Alan's knee and said, Alan, the Shankill bombing was wrong. No justification of Republican ideology or Loyalist ideology. It was wrong. And that actually began a process in him that allowed him to begin to change, where he then began to ask the question, well, what made a 18-year-old kid plant a bomb in my father-in-law's fish shop that killed my wife and my father-in-law? So I often think there, David, I often say real change takes place in the context of a meaningful relationship. So a lot of my work back home is really, I suppose, very simply, it's creating listening circles for people to hear one another's story, one another's pain. I mean, I read a quote by Einstein this morning there on LinkedIn, where he said, any person can know, but you need to understand. So I, agree with politi- I disagree with political violence, but I want to understand what possessed normal people, kids here in my class in school, to make abnormal choices. And I think the way that comes about is through just that engagement and understanding and I suppose as well, we'll get on to the Brexit thing eventually, but uh, David was using the phrase there, the economist, the mother of all messes. I'm not a Star Wars fan, so I'm not offending you people that are, but someone said, Brexit has created a disturbance in the force, mm-hmm. in a sense. So, so like relationships between Britain and Ireland, you know, up until four years ago, were at an all time high for hundreds of years. Now they're at an all time low. I mean, one of the main reasons is, as I mentioned earlier, because of what I call linguistic violence in the public space. That there is, I sort of, the phrase I use, these kind of verbal hand grenades were flinging across the border at one another. So, a lot of my work I do for the Irish government is bringing down unions and loyalists to Maynooth University, where people hear each other in the privacy of a quiet space, and where people can ask questions and understand. So linguistic violence, well, you only need to look at your context here in the United States. Uh, It just, it doesn't work. We need to encounter the human, we need to encounter the other. So you folks need to wrestle with this in your context as much as we do in ours.
0: Uh, Thanks, Gary. So, so, you you know, you raised Brexit. uh, so you have, you know, your ears pretty close to the ground in, in, in Belfast. Um, how dangerous do you think this moment is uh, for the peace process yeah. and for reconciliation? Yeah. And what do you think might happen? Which, of course, is a million-dollar question.
1: Okay, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a firm remainer, unashamedly. I think it's a disaster and more ways than one. And I suppose the complexity of speaking to some young undergraduates last night from the program and negotiation, and just saying to them, that oh, it, was, it wasn't even thought of, when the Good Friday Agreement was put together, that in the future that the UK may disengage. Uh, so we could say it was a monumental mistake, I, I just don't know, historians and political analysts will look at that in relation to the future. I don't think we'll go back to violence, but my concern is, and I said this, I mean, I this time, I, mean, I know Gerry Adams, I know Mary Lou MacDonald well, and you know, I said to Mary Lou in a coffee in Dublin just last year that I think Sinn Féin are completely wrong in using Brexit and calling for a border poll at the same time. I have no issue, if a United Ireland comes about through democracy, I will embrace it, absolutely no question about that. Um, but the the, the issue dealing with Brexit at the moment is is monumental, uh, rather than using it to call for a border poll. So five or six or seven years' time, we want to have that debate around a border poll. I'm I'm totally up for it. But I just think it's pure political opportunism. And I understand politics is about opportunism in that sense, but I do just think it's reckless. Uh, Within sort of my side of the fence and the sort of Democratic Unionist Party, uh, the concern in relation to that, being perfectly honest, is. the Tories at the moment have a love in with the Democratic Unionist Party, and many commentators would say that is not going to last forever. So I don't think we go back to violence. The concern is if we end up with a no deal, I think it does definitely raise the temperature, David. There's no question about that. Uh, so the hope is I mean, I, I, I'm hoping for another referendum, and that's maybe a pipe dream in a sense. Uh, my next choice is a very, very, very soft Brexit. And it's interesting, you know, it's just kind of often, it's the same here, what I call the public versus the private. Privately, senior DEP figures would be saying, you know, maybe, maybe we should stay in the customs union, but because of towing the party line, they can't say that in the public space. So, those sort of private versus public conversations. Are very, very difficult as well. I mean, today, I'm mean, just smiling the Joyce, sir. I'm saying, like, what a day to be in Harvard, so in Parliament in uh, London. Uh, there's, and I don't know what's happened, how many votes have been taken, and what the speaker is allowed through. And you're enjoying the chaos of Robert Mueller. What a world in which we live. Enough to put you a crunching Prozac before midnight when you look at what's happening in our kind of parliamentary affairs here at the moment. I, I, I think David hopefully will end up with a soft Brexit. And I mean, that's my, my prayer. I can't see us getting a referendum, to mm-hmm. be honest. Um, mm-hmm. But the irony of it all is, you know, let, let's be honest. And I think, you know, for all of us who are people of faith or people who have no faith but are people of integrity, Brexit was built on deceit. You know, there were lies told about $350 million Uh, Per week, wasn't it Joyce, or per day, whatever it was, uh, going into the health service, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The fear of the immigrants, I mean, you guys know this, they're taking our jobs. I did a panel in uh, September at a university there in West Virginia, and uh, the panel was on that little book, Hillbilly Elegy. Uh, And we were just kind of saying, you know, in many ways, the sort of working class loyalist community that those of us here in the front row know about, you know, in many ways, were exploited by. Sort of upper class unionism and so on, and you know, I think many people, white poor people here, were exploited politically in so many ways within your system here as well. You know, promises being made that, as many of you people know in this room, just have not been delivered. In a sense, so I often say as well, like I mean, looking at negotiation and deals, uh, politicians assume that once the deal is done, societal healing automatically follows. And yet, in reality, nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, politicians, and we need politicians, and there may be some in the room, so bless you, but by and large, you're people of short-term vision. Uh, The most important thing in most politicians' lives is the next election. Be that Donald Trump, Theresa May, Jeremy Corbyn, Benjamin Netanyahu, you know, those are the most important things in their lives. And John Brewer, as you know, has developed this... uh, kind of political peace process versus the social peace process. So I want to say to all us people in this room here, who are people of civic society, uh, that one of the key things to our peace process was the role of civic society. So people like David as academics, uh, people like myself as religious leaders, uh, women's groups, NGOs, uh, who, who played a role. So in other words, we really worked hard to hold our politicians accountable. We elect these darn people and we ignore them for four or five years. We need to hold our politicians accountable and we need to create mechanisms to allow that to happen.
0: So going back and then I'll open it up for questions. Um, so the, the, the peace agreement was um, really forged um, you know, by some external uh, actors helping and two main political parties that have virtually disappeared yeah. from view now, the uh, SDLP, SDLP. Um, and uh, official unionists. Um, So the parties now in the ascendancy in Northern Ireland, Democratic Unionist Party, Ian Paisley's old party, and Sinn Féin, um, uh, which Gerry Adams was president of for a a considerable period of time. Um, And of course, there's no government now in Northern Ireland. That government broke down a couple of years ago, that power-sharing executive. do you see any way that that government will be restored? Um, or do you think that the two current leading political parties and their supporters and their religious backers um, uh, simply can't find a way of, of building a new kind of political arrangement? I
1: mean, another, it's another way of asking the question of how dangerous the moment yes, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's a great question. I know some of you younger people in this room may end up doing. PhD thesis and some of this I mean, Here's my analysis of it. The key to the Good Friday, I mean, there there are three types of peace process, I often say, sort of like Sri Lanka, uh, where you do get a peace process, uh, you crush your enemy completely, the Tamil Tigers. So there's no peace deal officially, but you win. Second, South Africa, where you kind of get colonial regime change at the top, but economically, not a lot of difference at the bottom. Uh, so I mean, high poverty rates still in townships, uh, sexual violence against the LGBT community and women in townships at an all-time high. Our peace process was what was called a second preference peace process, uh, where no one totally got their own way. So in that sense, it was a very integrated, fragile peace process in so many ways. But the key to it was that people could designate themselves as British or Irish. The principle of consent democratically if a majority eventually want a United Ireland, we begin to explore that. The curse of Brexit, David, is so people who were, who were not Sinn Féin, who were moderate nationalist Catholics, because their Irishness was recognised in Northern Ireland, the kind of sociological phrase was economic Catholics. So they saw the benefits economically of being part of Britain. They were comfortable enough, as I used to say, maybe after four or five pints of Guinness on a Friday night and a couple of old Republican songs, they loved the United Ireland, but come Monday morning and the British government was paying my salary, I was happy enough to be flexible for the time being. However, Brexit has changed all that. Because the concern for many, I had a meeting about this three four weeks ago, with moderate niceness, who were saying to me as a moderate unionist, you know, Gary. Some of us don't even want Stormont back up and running again. So I go, really? Like this is not republicanism, this is not the IRA, this is not the people of Arm's struggle. These are moderate, well-meaning, uh, no hidden agenda nationalists who were willing to try the Northern Ireland experiment and see is it going to work. And this is where I think the DUP are getting this wrong because there is no longer a unionist majority in Northern Ireland. So Peter Robison, who's the former leader of the DUP, who's been doing a significant amount of work with me around the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, Peter Robinson's, a brilliant strategist, and his idea, he said, was, if we're gonna maintain the union, we have to appeal to these moderate, middle-class economic Catholics to maintain the union. Brexit has done the darn opposite. It has driven them all away and made them more green and nationalistic than what they were five or six years ago. So my concern is that ultimately this will come back to haunt the DEP in another way. And um, so, so, I mean, what happens over the next few days or weeks? I mean, I can't see them exiting on the 29th of March, but yet the hardline Brexiteers, although, we see, Jacob Rees-Moog uh, said today he may be willing to consider a little addendum The irony of all this, you know, the humour of all this is funny too. And we're just talking, somebody's talking about humour today, actually, the Syrian person, Polly, when we were at that last lecture. I had a group of very, very senior loyalists uh, who were basically senior figures within the UVF, that was the most lethal Protestant terrorist force down uh, meeting the uh, Dublin government there a number of months ago. And uh, here we have the DUP, who, as you know, was. uh, headed up by Ian Paisley, who was determined to convince us that the Pope was the Antichrist, etc, etc, etc. So Jacob Rees-Mogg is a devout Catholic, calls his children after former Popes, and here we have the DUP in bed with Jacob Rees-Mogg, and I'm saying Paisley will probably be spinning in his grave, you know, and that's the, the irony of the whole thing. Some of the alliances are just bizarre at the moment around Brexit. They are weird, to put it mildly. my leg, honestly.
0: Gary, I think this would be a good moment to open it up. So can I ask I mean, just a few questions? If you could make your questions fairly brief and make sure there's a, full, there's a question mark at the end of them. <laughs> so no sermons. <laughs>
1: uh, we heard about the role of the outside influence. Are we actually inflame the insiders. For example, in Ireland, we heard about Gaddafi actually played a role. Now with Brexit, we're hearing about Soviet Union playing a role. I guess the real question is, what is the influence of these foreign influence?
0: Which role did Gaddafi play? Use
1: the mic, please. Which role did Gaddafi play and which role did the Soviet Union play in Brexit? Yeah, yeah. I mean, as regards the, the speaker there was asking sort of outside influences, roles, uh, so I mean, the infamous uh, Colonel Gaddafi was a be an arms supplier to the IRA. There's absolutely uh, no question about that. And uh, I suppose one of the key things, I guess, for Republicanism really um, was internationalizing the conflict. And in a strange way, that did bring it to an end. I mean, the British were very much against that initially, but there's no question about it. I mean, even if you're not a Bill Clinton fan here today, you know, in our language, Bill Clinton played a blinder. He was brilliant. Uh, as regards his political strategy, uh, and was very, very influential. So there's, there's no question about it that uh, Clinton did play a very key role, particularly in the 90s, uh, in bringing our conflict to an end, and, and did pour his heart and soul into it. And I suppose as well, I mean, you, had Tony Blair and Bertie Ahern, who were men in their, in their 40s there as well, uh, who were ambitious. And I mean, ambi- I say my ambition's good. You know, moral ambition is really, really a good thing. A moral ambition is a very bad thing. Uh, so you I mean a good relationship there the influence of Clinton, and that really did make a significant difference. Uh, as regards the role of the Soviet Union and Brexit, uh, I haven't heard that one. Whether or not Robert Mueller brings it up today in his conversation when he's being questioned about Russia, it's he gone, may know something yeah. I don't know, but I haven't heard that theory yet. But I have no doubt there will be some conspiracy theory appearing on Netflix over the next few years in relation to that yeah. as well. <laughs> I
0: should maybe I mean uh, uh, not presume that the audience knows too much about you know h- how this works or what's going on with Brexit in Ireland, so maybe just say a few things correct me if I'm wrong because yeah, right I, your... I haven't <laughs> been um, living there for some time, but in the referendum that was that took place um, uh, uh, around the European you know you know that fifty two percent in um, uh, 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 overall voted to um, leave uh, the European Union, 48% uh, wanted to remain. In Northern Ireland, the majority voted to remain, uh, around about 55, 56%, um, and a minority uh, voted to, um, uh, to leave. But the, the voting statistics are such, if you look at where the votes were coming from, um, you know most um, uh, uh, nationalists in Northern Ireland did vote uh, to remain in the European Union, because um, uh, the border itself had become a pretty soft border, like a very soft border. If you travel from Belfast to Dublin, you do not know when you're crossing the border. Whereas when we were in our early 20s, this was a heavily militarized uh, 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 border. And no one really wants to go back to that um, you know, militarized border, but no one's kind of figured out a solution. A hard Brexit would mean some sort of customs and control. Um, a soft Brexit, you know, creates some problems because um, it might uh, involve uh, uh, the UK. and Northern Ireland staying within the customs union, um, uh, which would ease the border crossings, but makes the DUP very nervous because. And um, it really looks as if Northern Ireland might be treated as a special category and you know, the DUP or unionists first and other things after. So uh, Brexit has created, you know, is there to be a backstop or not a backstop? What role does the DUP play in this? What are their actual policies about this? No one really wants to go back to a hard border, but might a hard border come out of this? And if so, what would be the long-term consequences of that, which are really not very good? What impact will it have on the economy, North and South? And a lot of um, projections are that both the Northern and Southern Irish economies would suffer a great deal from a hard Brexit. So it's making a lot of the business community extremely nervous. Um, and if you get something like a five or six or 7% drop in GDP, which some people are predicting, then you get all the economic you know, underpinning of a potentially dangerous situation. So that and the fact that there's no Northern Ireland government in existence at the moment, you know, it, it folded two years ago because of a heating Whatever. scandal, which we won't get into. It wasn't Brexit itself that caused that, but Brexit is, uh, Brexit is uh, ex- exacerbating it. So all to say, this is an extremely complicated situation and it doesn't really look very good. Uh, um, you know, on the 29th of March, if there's no deal struck as it stands, Britain will exit the European Union um, and then something will have to be thought of uh, for Northern Ireland and how that's to function within uh, that new reality. So I'm sorry if that even yeah. mystifies you further, <laughs> but, um, um, but it is important um, uh, to realize that Brexit isn't just a problem for the European Union and UK democracy. It's a problem for the United Kingdom full stop, because the majority of Scots and the majority of people in Northern Ireland voted to remain, um, and a majority of people in England um, uh, voted to leave, uh, metropolitan London being the biggest center of Remainers. So uh, knowing something about that electoral geography is actually kind of yeah, important. Sure. So that's enough of a monologue. Um, any other questions? Please. So my name
1: is Julene. I'm curious if you could talk about any other theological elements that might be operating in a generative way, um, particularly from the Christian church in your context. Okay. And obviously, I know you talked about reconciliation. That's yeah, a yeah. huge one. Yes, I know. And the last section in that paper, which was too long, as uh, most preachers do end up with too long, so was, was more around the whole concept really of, of sort of theology and how it should be spilling into the public space. I mean, I think looking at the church there back home, I mean, I think pastorally during the conflict, they did a pretty good job. I think prophetically, um, they could have done better. So I think too many of us ended up really what I would call sort of chaplains to our own tribes. Uh, Because it was always a risk mechanism. I mean, it was David when there was probably about 12 to 15 of us, of which I was the one and was the youngest, that really were involved in what you would sort of call hardcore conversations, were those who were pursuing uh, political terrorism in a sense, and I suppose in many ways during that, I guess now the people primarily involved in the violence were not necessarily regular church attenders. Some may have been, but I was always in those conversations, I guess, trying to create some moral framework, and and really being quite futuristic about it in a sense. I mean, saying you know we can go on to kill each other for another hundred years, and that option is perfectly open to us. But are there possibilities or are there options that maybe, just maybe, to use John Hume's phrase, we can finally take the gum out of Irish politics? And you know, John Hume is a very moderate nationalist Catholic, uh, was the person who began the Hume Adams talks. But again, the venue for the Hume Adams talks were Clonard Monastery as well. So those talks, so suppose the other question we ask ourselves, be it mosques, synagogues, or churches, can we use sacred space to facilitate what we call back home Uncomfortable conversations, and I think the answer must be yes. And I think in the American context, and I, I've said this, you know. Suppose I was saying, you know, so you know, is Harvard facilitating dialogue between Democrats and Republicans, or your churches doing that? Um, so I just think that if politicians aren't going to step up and do this, so I'm asking academics, I'm asking faith leaders, we need, I think, be stepping into the gap in relation to that. And I suppose that Brexit initiative that I sort of spearheaded for, I guess, two and a half, sort of 30 months now, was trying to create a space where people would actually hear each other. And, and in doing that, you know, so for example, if I had key people sitting in front of the Dublin government, they were able to ask them face-to-face what the issues were and then take the proper story back in relation to that. Uh, there's a phrase there in Jeremiah uses, uh, moving from being prisoners of history to being prisoners of hope. So you're not kind of denying that sometimes, we're all in some form of imprisonment. you know. I, I would class myself now as British and Irish and European. I have a British and an Irish passport, in a sense. So I mean, I've had that journey from out of what was a very tight British Unionist culture, in a sense, but that was only through engagement with the other. Again, just David's point there as well, just that he was mentioning. If we were having this conversation three years ago, the main issue we would have been talking about would have been dealing with the legacy of the past. And I was with a very senior IRA figure, who I'm very, very close to and do a lot of work with, just pray, prior to Christmas in the City Hall. So we're now dealing with the past, Brexit, LGBT, uh, the heating scandal, the Irish language. So there's, almost, there's a lot of fault lines, really, as David has said, running through, a bit like the San Andres fault, running through Irish society at the moment. But I do think, you know, I mean, going back to the whole theology concept, that there have been a number of key initiatives. I mean, you know, uh, when I use the word evangelical, I don't use it in the American context there, uh, because evangelicalism here is fundamentalism. It's most certainly not. It's not the evangelicalism of John Wesley and the warmed heart, in a sense. But a number of sort of modern evangelicals I was involved with the eighties and David would know, and the an initiative called ECONI, which was evangelical contribution in Northern Ireland. And it was really asking you know, questions about how are we reading the Bible in a conflict situation? Um, and looking at questions of, of identity and repentance and citizenship. So what does that actually say? So there's, I mean, if you're in, i give you a card, there's a lot of resources. In fact, they're moving and actually to the Union Theological Seminary, the whole resource, which is the Presbyterian Seminary there. So there are a number of resources around that where, where theology was used in a sense to stop people being so darn nationalistic. So I'm happy enough to email some of that to you if that's helpful. Some more questions. Thank you very much for that enlightening talk. You started off by saying that uh, reconciliation presupposes confrontation and some kind of operation. I'm I'm assuming you mean like uh, surgery type operation, yeah, yeah, cutting yeah, the womb, yes, yes, yeah, yeah. and then you ended up by listing five things uh, which are uh, close to achieving reconciliation. Yeah. But one thing
0: that I was struck with: where is uh, rectification and justice? Where does yeah. that come in?
1: Good, can one. you talk about that yeah, a bit? Thank can. you. Can I also just say, in that quotation, I didn't say that. Normally, when I use that quotation, that South African professor, I think a better phrase. I'm not being critical of. I think a better phrase would have been managed confrontation rather than just, you know, when we think of confrontation, it almost smacks of aggression there at times. I mean, the justice question and our biggest issue around this legacy of the past. So Good Friday Agreement very, very, very quickly. So it was release of prisoners, reform of the RUC and decommissioning of terrorists or paramilitary um, weapons. There was nothing in it in relation to dealing with the past. So, no doubt historians and social analysts of another generation may say it should have been in. Others would say if it was in, the whole thing may have collapsed. We may never have got it over the line in the first place. So, it's a very intricate, delicate document in even getting it signed up to in the first place. If I had committed a crime in 1977, 78 as a paramilitary or terrorist, and I was discovered today that I had murdered 10 people, I would only serve two years in prison. So that was a compromise, as well as prisoner releases. So to give you a very graphic example, and I'll illustrate it, I mean Joyce and I would do some work with victims in these listening circles. There are many people today who lost loved ones in the 1970s who simply want what you and I would define as penal justice. I don't care, Gary, if they only served two years in prison, that's what I want, they murdered my brother, sister, grandfather, whatever. And I remember being in an Eskilling not so long ago with Joyce and a lady saying, I wake up every single day, I want the person in the IRA who murdered my aunt and uncle to serve two years. I understand that. But I think pastorally in talking to this person, who's a woman I'm guessing, late 60s now, I tried to widen the circle. So I said to her, Greta, I too would probably like them to go to prison however The people that committed this atrocity, first of all, may be dead. Secondly, in the 1970s, forensic science was not what it is today. So the chances of them being caught are almost nil. I mean, George Hamilton, who's the current chief constable, who actually is a person of faith and a friend of mine, he was honest and he said that we will be lucky or fortunate if we get 3% convictions. So really, I suppose, if you want to put this person's life, this lady's life, psychologically or theologically, you want to analyse her, she's living in denial. Which people do when they're in grief. Now, 30 years later seems a long time, but she still is living in denial in that sense. So you're putting in a kind of you know, William Warden or Elizabeth Kubler-Ross model. She hasn't moved through the various stages. Do you me find healing there in relation to that? So I think it's my role as a pastoral person to gently widen that equation and try to make her, her, confront her gently with some form of honesty. So I asked Greta, is there something else that could bring about healing? So in dealing with the past, another mechanism that's in this under the Stormont House Agreement, which is another agreement out of the scores of agreements we've had since the Good Friday Agreement, that allows for what they call, it's an information and retrieval commission. So in other words, the paramilitary terrorist groupings take ownership of what they did provide information to the family, why was your brother shot, murdered, or injured, or whatever, and, and tries to create some space around that. Interestingly, many, many victims groups have said, look, we cope with the release of prisoners, I don't want somebody get back into jail for two years for murdering my brother, but I really want to know why they did it, because that would bring me closure, in a sense. So in many ways, you know, the victims groups have been the unsung heroes too in many, many ways, have so shown remarkable fortitude. And I mean the other thing as well, they've often wrestled with this and the one thing I don't understand, and I say this as a as a human being with emotions probably of revenge, like every other human being from time to time in the room, I really don't know why we haven't had more revenge killings. Because this is no one in such a small space. I mean I could probably list and I can't do it for intelligence reasons, you know, people that did murders because people know, you know, through different sources. You know, so, you know, this is not, this is not Texas going up to, uh, you know, to Massachusetts. The person that killed my brother's sister lives three streets away from me. So in some strange way, and maybe in a spiritual way or a theological way, there has been some uh, faith restraint or moral framework that has stopped just somebody saying, I'm gonna watch where they're going and I'm gonna kill them. You know, that really, honestly, in my context, you know, the, you know it's really, it's been a blessing that and you know, not being over spiritual about that, that there hasn't been more sort of evening the score, so to speak, in so many ways, you know, but yeah, I mean, I mean it's a great question. There's someone we're going to wrestle with for a while, to put it mildly, there's one other question there. I know you guys need do lot of time as well.
0: Thanks. Yeah. One, one more question. You've got the last word, better be good. <laughs> <laughs> no pressure here. <laughs> <laughs> Turn around this full. For okay. Is it religion, okay. or is it these religions? Is it theology yeah. or revealed theology? Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. Keep it simple. I mean, <laughs> so yeah. right, look. <laughs> There is no question about it. I, mean, it was a, it was, I think it was James Denny, who's was a theologian of another generation, David once said, human nature loves a monopoly. We're all too ready to unchurch or unchristianize others. So I think in many ways, while it was never a religious war, as I underlined earlier on, so we were not, fi- this was not 16th, 17th, Reformation, Counter-Reformation stuff, But there's no doubt there was a demonization of the other. So, I mean, the quote, two things are just to say that. The quote of the the Jewish theologian, Abraham Joshua Herschel, who's, you know, walked with Martin Luther King Jr. He said two things. He said, dehumanization precedes genocide. So if you dehumanize a person, theologically, sociologically, psychologically, it's really much easier to kill them. So it is. But the other phrase he used, which, which is a haunting phrase for all of us, He said, it was words, not machines, that created Auschwitz. Okay? It was words, not machines, that created Auschwitz. So final thought for the day or sermon as I finish. For all of us, we need to be really, really careful, particularly people of religious faith, how we speak. Uh, And particularly how we speak in the public space. You know, going back to what Jonathan Sachs was saying, you can use or you can abuse religion and we just need to be so, so careful. So I want to be a person that speaks words of healing into the public space, words of reconciliation, uh, words that can redirect and make a difference in people's lives. And I just think it's so important that we're able uh, to do that. So look, we'll finish there and uh, thank you for coming out, as David says, in a freezing day. <laughs>